you know, what a blessing it is to serve the Lord. And we've got a great text today taken from Acts chapter 17 as we look at giving. Paul is in Athens, Greece, and we pick it up in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting there for Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some were Epicureans and Stoic philosophers, also conversed with him. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all of the Athenians Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the fa- all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your prophets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. I have a friend in southwestern Florida who is a pastor of a church that gets 3,000 people in the winter and 900 people in the summer. And one man is there every week. And that man, not long ago, wrote this. I spent my life in the private equity market. Every day, all day, I thought about money and investments. And there's one place that I wanted not to hear about money, and that was the church. For years, I thought that's all the church talked about, money. So I stayed away. But in 1991, all of that changed for me. 
It was then that I determined that I will never attend or belong to a church that doesn't ask me for my money on a regular basis, and I'll tell you why. On July 23rd, 1970, my wife and I had our first child, a little boy. We had tried to have a child for five years with no success, and now he was here. I'll never forget hearing his first cry. That was before they allowed fathers into the delivery room. And so when the nurse came out through the door, announcing to me that I was the proud father of a baby boy, before she could say anything, I said, was that my baby I just heard? She said, yes. I went in and I saw him, the most beautiful baby boy I had ever seen in my life. Our dreams had come true. We now had a family. I was on cloud nine. The thing I wanted most was to take him and his mother home and and spend time getting used to each other. But within a few minutes, the glow of fatherhood began to dim when I was summoned to the business office. Turned out that my insurance wasn't what it was advertised to be. And I owed a whole lot of money. In fact, it seemed like the hospital was holding my child and my wife hostage until I paid the bill. So I jumped in my car. I went home, got my checkbook, came back to the business office and wrote the largest check I had written in a lot of years. Quickly, I discovered that children are expensive. There's food to buy and there's formula to get. And then there are all those diapers. There are doctor visits and immunizations and booster shots. There are toys, there are trips, there are clothes, all of which that assaults a bank account. I quickly learned that by the time you build a child's wardrobe, he grows another inch and you've got to start all over. And his size continues to increase, and so do the expenses. Soon there are dress shoes and gym shoes and running shoes, not to mention all of the glasses and all of the braces, and then disaster hits. He becomes a teenager. Now there's a car, and there are dates, and there are brand names. But more than that, my son dreamed from his earliest years of being an architect, and now it seemed as though he was in school forever, five years, six years. Talk about expensive. There was tuition, and there's books, and there are drawing tools, and drawing tablets. But like most parents, I was happy to do it. I never saw the financial sacrifice as a burden. He was growing up. He was pursuing his potential. He was living out his dreams, and it was a joy for me to help. In fact, that's why my wife and I were there. To be the wind under his wings. But then one day it all changed. On a bright, sunny, horrible October day, we buried our only child in a country cemetery. And that day as I walked away from the grave, I had this thought. 
I'll never spend another dime on him. And suddenly I realized death is cheap. The dead don't need money. And that's why I'll never belong to a church that doesn't ask me for money on a regular basis. You know something, he's right. There are churches with no vision. There are churches with no plans beyond themselves. There are churches that are headed to death. And in death, there are no expenses. It's only life that costs anything. It's only life that causes you to want to give and give and give some more. One of my heroes in the faith said if he went to another church to preach, he'd spend the first six months talking about giving. Because when you get their giving right, he said, their hearts get right too. That's exactly what we see Paul doing here in Athens. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the provocation. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting in Athens for Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols, and so he reasoned with them. Now, 600 years before Paul gets there, Athens was a bustling town that was the center of human thought. It was the center of, of the world for philosophy, for art, for architecture, for drama. Athens was the place to be. Athens was the place where democratic principles of government took shape. Athens was the place where they built the Acropolis, where democratic principles were legislated. And yet by the time Paul gets there, Athens is a vestige of what it had been. You see, Rome came. Rome destroyed much of Athens' glory. In fact, Athens became a place where they could demand confiscatory taxes. They became subject to Roman rule. But of all of the things that marked the decline of Athens, there was one thing in particular that marked its speedy decline, and that was a giant famine. 500 years before Paul gets there, there's a famine across Greece. And in Athens, the need is extraordinary. According to historians, the pestilence was so severe that the people of Athens were willing to, to try anything to get away from the famine. So there was a poet that came from Crete with an idea. He said this, I want you to take a flock of sheep. And I want you to go up that rock hill called Ares Rock, the place where it's thought, according to Greek mythology, that the god Ares was tried for the murder of Poseidon's son. And there in this Ares Rock, on top of these rocks, at a place where the Athenian High Court of Appeal convened to listen to arguments, a place called the Areopagus, there the poet said, I want you to release these sheep, sheep that are half black and half white. And he said, wherever the sheep lie down on this rock face, I want you to sacrifice to one of your gods. And then after you've sacrificed to all of your gods and built an altar to sacrifice that sheep in these various places, wherever the sheep lie down, I want you finally to sacrifice one of the white sheep 
to a God who is unknown. I want you to build an altar there to the God who is unknown and sacrifice a sheep and the famine will be lifted. Now, whether that happened or not, I don't know. I mean, whether or not it was these sacrificial sheep that took the famine away, all I know is the famine left and all of these idols, all of these altars to all of these gods were found all over the city of Athens and all over the Areopagus. One man has said Paul was not so much impressed by the culture of Athens as he was irritated by the veritable forest of idols. Somebody said that in Athens there were more idols to more gods than in all of the towns and villages of, of Greece put together. So look what, Paul, or what, what Luke tells us Paul does when he gets there. He looks and he sees all of these idols and he begins to reason with them. Years ago, when I was in high school, I remember a preacher preaching on this text. The reason I remember was because he was the pastor of the church I attended. And I'll never forget, he preached on this text and he said this. When you go to Corinth and when you go to Ephesus and you see Paul preaching there, hundreds were saved and that's because when Paul preached in those cities, he was preaching in the Spirit. But when he came to Athens... Few people are saved because he's not preaching in the spirit. He's preaching in the flesh. And then the preacher said, I'll prove it to you. And he goes to this text and he says, Luke says, Paul reasoned with them. You see, he used his mind instead of allowing the spirit to speak. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you file that under biblical malpractice. He was my pastor, and I thought he was right then, but he was dead wrong. The word reason here in Greek literally means to address an audience. And what Luke is saying is, as Paul looks at all of these idols in this city, his spirit is moved within him, and he begins to apply all of his faculties to making an argument against the idols. And for Christ. Luke tells us he goes into the synagogue. How does he reason there? He reasons through the scriptures. He goes into the marketplace. How does he reason with those people? He reasons through their own false philosophies. Think of it. When Paul sees all of these idols. He determines to meet these people on their own turf. And Luke says, his spirit is provoked within him. Now listen to what the Greek says. His spirit is pained within him. In other words, as he sees all of these false idols and false gods who are worshipped, Paul's spirit is pained. He's pained for them. And as a result of his pain, he determines to pay the price And the price is, he is willing to meet them where they are and deliver to them Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and Him resurrected. Second, notice the proclamation. Look at verse uh, 19. And they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, 
in verse 18, they call him a babbler. Do you know what a babbler means? It literally means a, it's a bird who goes and finds scraps of food and flies away with them. As one very noted commentator says, really what they're saying about Paul is that he's the kind of person who goes into the gutter and picks up cigarette butts and tries to smoke them. (laughs) I mean, they are really dissing Paul. Now, think about who he is. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest mind of the era. Paul had an erudite mind. He He was quick. There was a theological and philosophical acuity about Paul. He was a very brilliant man, and yet they're willing to call him a babbler. But notice what Paul does in response. He tells them of Jesus and the resurrection. Somebody once said, you can't preach Jesus and yourself at the same time. Paul doesn't. He determines to preach Christ and Him only. Why? Because he knows that it's not about seeking to win an argument that matters. What matters is their need and the one that can meet it. So notice what Luke tells us. They take him up the Areopagus, up this this mountain, this hill of rock, to a place where a man is to make a reasoned argument for himself. But what does Paul do? He does exactly what Jesus did when they brought him up the hill. He doesn't argue for himself. He points to their need. And then third, notice the perception. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I have a friend who went to Africa a couple of decades ago, and he stayed in a mission house. And there that first night, his host hosted a giant dinner. And the host set him next to this woman who had been in ministry for years there. And as he was sitting next to this woman, this woman began to be more and more hostile toward him. And my friend said, as she got hostile with me, I got hostile with her. And at the end of the evening, the mission... Uh, missionary who was hosting my friend said, well, what did you think of dinner? He said, the food was good, but you sat me next to a witch. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You need to know something. That woman has been in Africa as a missionary for 35 years, and next week she is being forced to retire and go back to the United States, and she's scared to death. The next night at dinner... My friend sat next to her again and listened to her pain and had compassion on her. And ladies and gentlemen, that's exactly what Paul is doing at the Areopagus. He looks at their idols. He sees their lostness. They think they know, but they don't know. They think they see, but they don't see. He, they think they hear, but they can't hear. And so what does Paul do? He determines to remember who he was. Remember who he was? He was a man so committed to his beliefs that he sanctioned the death of others. 
Here's a guy who knows what it's like to be spiritually blind. He knows what it's like to be in abject need. He knows what it's like to make a God out of his own reason. So instead of seeking to justify himself, he determines to humble himself and give them what they need. Who is Jesus? And then fourth, notice the proof. Look at verses 29 and 31a. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, notice what Paul's doing here. He is defining spiritual truth as a relationship. He's saying to these people, we are all offspring of God. God who has made us. And this same God will judge us by the one he's appointed and the one he's proved by raising him from the dead. You see, what Paul is doing is linking them to God. He's not someone they have to go find. He is one, this God, who's close to them. And all they need to do is to surrender to Him. Not only that, Paul not only links them to God, he links himself to them. Do you hear about the agnostic who was asked why he goes to this particular church every week? His friend said, you don't believe any of it. Why do you go listen to the ramblings of this preacher? He said, it all comes down to one word, we. Whenever he speaks of need, he says we. Whenever he speaks of sin, he says we. Whenever he speaks of a new life, he says we. He is part of the audience too. You know, before there was B.B. King, there was B.B. Warfield. You ever hear of B.B. Warfield? If you went to Princeton, you did. He taught there for 34 years. He was brilliant in Greek, amazing in Hebrew. He was a theological genius. 34 years until he died in 1921. B.B. Warfield wrote voluminously. But listen to what he says about the gospel. He says, the heart of the gospel is this. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we might become rich. And then B.B. Warfield says, dear Christian, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. Some of you pray night and day that the image of Christ might be made real in your life. If so, if that is you, you must be like him in giving. Objection one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. Then where would you be? Objection two, those who are needy are undeserving. Christ might have said that about us. He might have said, shall I lay down my life for these wicked rebels? I will give my life for the good angels. But he didn't. 
He left the 99 and came in search of me and you. Objection three. The poor may abuse it. Christ's answer, he might have said the same thing about us with much greater truth. Christ knew that we would trample his blood under our feet for years. He knew that most of us would despise it. He knew that many of us would use it as an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. Oh, dear Christian, if you would be like Christ, give, give much, give often, give freely to the vilest, to the poorest, to the thankless, to the undeserving, just like he gave to you. And when you do, B.B. Warfield said, you will enter into the joy of Jesus. Now imagine having one child, a beautiful boy, and at 22 he dies instantly. And when you walk away from the cemetery, imagine thinking to yourself, I'll never spend another dime on him. He'll never cost me one single cent. How would you feel, happy or sad? Would you feel more alive or more dead? That's what Jesus means when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you know something? Jesus didn't just say that. He proved it. Have you proved that? Have you proved that it's more blessed to give than to receive? There's only one way to prove it. And that's to give Beyond yourself. That's what Paul did in Athens. That's what Jesus did outside Jerusalem. That's what he calls us to do. Here, in this town, in this city, in this world. Amen.